It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Congo is over. Captain, please. I only wish to explore and discover. Activate the remote. In the race for the world's most advanced communications technology. A shocking discovery has been made. What was that? Lock your remote. Give me a thermal reading result to 6-6. It will take two young scientists into the heart of the African jungle. Where a secret hidden for 2,000 years holds the key to the future. This is Karen Ross. 81452 Houston, do you read? You used to work for the CIA, and now you're travel cool. Some will come to it for science. This is a big deal, Charles. This is a big find. Some for fortune. A diamond mine of incredible bounty. 
and some to return home. She doesn't really belong anywhere, does she? No, she belongs here. Together, they will search. My boss, he thought I wasn't going to make it. He sent another expedition. Drawn deep into a mystery. Camp destroyed, people dead, a gray gorilla. No such thing as a gray gorilla. I saw one. And the more they discover... Same hieroglyphics over and over. The greater the danger. What do they say? We are watching you. Congo, we're kicking off our 1996. Uh, this is a, you know, continue our year of series. This is the 1996 Golden Raspberry Awards. That's right. It's the Razzies. We're talking about the worst director nominees. Five films from 1995 that uh, people looked down upon, I guess is fair to say. And we're kicking things off with Congo, Frank Marshall's film. Oh, Congo. Yeah. What happened? With this movie, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, where where should we start? Well, just out of curiosity, Frank Marshall generally, we should just say, is known as a producer, very very prominent producer in Hollywood, has done a lot of stuff, has not directed nearly as much. Started with some behind the scenes making ofs, and then like for Roger Rabbit, he did some like live action directing of some of the like you know those shorts it kind of starts with the live action and then goes into the cartoon and then he started his uh real directing career with arachnophobia in 1990 alive in 93 and then this in 95 since then he's done eight below in 06 he's done an episode of signals the tv series he's done a lot of other little bits and pieces tv some music documentaries and uh, most recently directed the film Rather in 2023, which uh, is kind of also, again, another documentary uh, about Dan Rather. So very few narrative feature films under his belt. And this was the third after Arachnophobia, which I enjoyed quite a bit, and Alive, which I enjoyed um, at the time, but then I, you know, forgot about it. And then I saw Society of the Snow recently, and now I'm like, Frank Marshall had no idea what he was doing with that story. And Eight Below, which I never saw, but I think you have talked about a number of times and you've put um, the dog story on your list when we talk about dog movies and stuff. Uh, I mean, where do you stand with Frank Marshall as a director? Uh, not that close. You've seen all of those, though, right? I have. And I just, I, I didn't, honestly, I, I came to this movie and I didn't actually remember that he had directed it. And it made me, I think it made me sad because, you know, some other movies that he's done, I really enjoyed. Uh, I, you know, I've talked, I've mentioned Eight Below before. I, I really like, and, and um, you know, he did an episode of From the Earth to the Moon, and I love every single bit of that series. This movie is a real outlier in it to me in, in a lot of the stuff that I've seen at least it is this is and and same thing with the the writer I mean we're fans of uh JPS and somehow this movie did just didn't hit it just didn't hit and and it makes me sad John Patrick Shanley uh when he was offered the film this was from an interview uh with Nathan Rabin that he said Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall came to me with Congo and asked me to read it. They're good friends of mine. They're terrific people. They gave me the book and I read it. I called them and said, I read it. They said, well, what'd you think? And I said, I like the title. This is dead accurate. This is exactly what I said. I like the title. Then I paused and I said, I like that it starts in San Francisco and they go to the Congo. I like that. And they said, great, we'll make the deal. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. And as I recall, you and I had the pleasure of sitting in on several panels with John Patrick Shanley back when we were in college. And I remember him talking about Congo, bringing it up, because somebody asked, you know, what? why did he choose to be a part of that? And and his response was, haven't you ever just done something just for the money? <laughs> yeah, right. That's, I mean, that's what it feels like. I, because I, there, I look at all of the people in this movie, right? I look at, I look at Laura Linney, I look at Tim Curry, uh, you know, haven't you ever done something just from the, for the money feels like an apt Mad Lib response for that question for any of them. Well, and it's, 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 uh, I think this came out at a time right after Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park was huge. Spielberg uh, really knocked it out of the park with that one a few years before this. And it kind of woke people up to, hey, we should do more adaptations of Michael Crichton's work. You know, he's, I mean, he's been around forever. He's been doing stuff in Hollywood, in and around Hollywood forever. He's got all these books. Uh, and Congo had been around. Actually, the interesting thing about the book, Congo, he was hired uh, this was after he had done The Great Train Robbery. He had done that, and he was offered a deal, which for him, he said it was very strange. It was a deal where he pitched the idea. He really wanted to do something that was kind of like a modern version of King Solomon's Minds. He pitched the idea to 20th Century Fox. They bought the rights to the book and the screenplay, like, all at once. He got in a one and a half million dollar advance for the novel, the screenplay, and as a directing fee. It all came in like one big lump sum. And he's, it kind of freaked him out. He's like, I've never worked that way. Usually I write the book and sell it. And then I kind of go from there. And this gave him writer's black. He ended up having a hard time coming up with the story. And finally he did. He got it written. And then it was really hard to actually get the book made. I mean, the book was published in 1980. And then they just couldn't figure out what to do with it. Sean Connery, uh, I don't think, clicked with it. And so, I don't know. When you look at the the way, like kind of the plot synopsis of the book, I haven't read the book. Have you read the book? Oh yes, you did. Okay. Oh yeah. So yeah, I've, did you I've read did you all. read this before? Like where? I mean, maybe we should just jump into Michael Crichton for a minute as far as his books. When did you start reading Crichton? Was it before or after Jurassic Park the movie came out? No, it was after Jurassic Park, and then I dove into all of them. Oh, okay. Right. That's that's when I was like, okay, I'm just, this is going to be a guy I read all of. Even even the, the biographical I'm a Doctor book. Oh, okay. And so I do, I like Michael Crichton a lot because I am a, uh, I'm a real sucker for like airport pulp. And that's kind of where I put this. Like, I read a lot of Michael Crichton on airplanes. That's what it feels like. Uh, that's my sense memory of it. And in the same way that people cry on, uh, on at dumb movies when watching them on airplanes that they normally wouldn't cry uh, at high altitude lacrimosity syndrome, I think that's possibly true with Michael Crichton books as well. I think I liked them more as a result of reading them on planes. Well, I mean, you say that, but isn't there a smartness to his writing, like or a scientific oh, sure. angle that he's taking that's that's not necessarily as airport pulpy? Yeah, that's the thing about this book too, in particular, because the story 
is still bonkers. Like if you step away from the Crichton stuff of it, right? He, it is still a bonkers movie. It just is so technical. It is very deep on the communication stuff, the satellites, the purpose of using diamonds and lasers for communication, uh, all of that stuff, the ethical, you know, um, uh, implications of communicating with apes, uh, and, and communicating with animal, animals. He explores all of that stuff very, very deeply. And I have to compare it to the adaptation of Jurassic Park to the movie Jurassic Park. The book Jurassic Park is largely the same story with a lot more technology in it, right? A lot more explanation. And yet somehow both the book and the movie work very, very well. Agreed? I, I'll be honest. I've never read a Michael Crichton book. Oh, okay. Good. All right. Well, I'll just say that on behalf of the book, it works very, very well. Yeah. Congo, the book, I remember leaving the book and saying, wow, I enjoyed that book. I even enjoyed just watching the movie the, the, the other day. It was like, God, I even like I hate Herkimahamolka. And in the book, I remember liking that the adaptation of that character. I liked who that was. Like all of it made sense. Somehow the book made sense. Like at the end, what, like what you, you know, Shanley didn't like the book. That's fine. But if I was on board with the Michael Crichtonness of it and liked the book. So that's on me. The adaptation falls apart around almost every corner doing the same stuff that Crichton does in the book. It just does not translate in this film. It does not translate. I would not want to be asked to make the adaptation of this book, but this one failed hard. Everything looks looks small, cheap, and and unexplained, even though the same images are described in the book, in large part. Here's an example of, again, not having read any of his stuff. I've only read kind of the plot summary of the book. In both stories, this expedition is searching through Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. They are searching through the jungles to find this, you know, mysterious lost city of Zinj. I mean, that's they're, they're technically there to find diamonds. They just happen to find them in this lost city of Zinj. The diamonds are it's this special blue diamond or something. It's uh, the the. Um, uh, the businessman wants to use them in this uh, in his technology to improve communications. How that involves lasers, I never quite figure out. Regardless, he wants to use these lasers to uh, basically get ahead of everybody in the technology space using communications by these powerful lasers or by these powerful diamonds. Now, in the uh, in the movie. They never use them for communication, but she they do find the diamond. It, you, it works in these lasers, which they use to mow down all these gray gorillas. They use it to shoot a satellite out of space, so clearly it's powerful. And then they're in a hot air balloon, and they toss the diamond into the jungle. And I'm like, well, but it's a diamond. Like, wouldn't isn't it still valuable? Like it just like that was such a weird little plot point, and I'm like, why would they just At chuck least it to make a giant ring out of it? <laughs> yeah, why would they chuck it into the jungle? Right. So. And this is this is an example in the in the reading the plot synopsis. It says this is a certain type of diamond, the type two B, which are naturally boron doped and thus useful as semiconductors, though worthless as gemstones. And just that little tiny bit, I'm like, oh, 
it's it's worthless as a gemstone. Like that's never explained in the film. And like that's the sort of little detail that I feel like when they were making the translation, again, I can't speak to the quality of the book, but just making the translation, it's just like just missing that little detail is the sort of thing that's like that's kind of helpful information to have in the scope of a story, just to better understand exactly the scope of all this. Cause even like Herkimer Komolka, he's running around grabbing all these diamonds. Does he know they're worthless? Like, uh, like there are things that I just like, I feel like they could have used a little more like of that sort of stuff. Well, and, and speaking again of the Crichtonness of it, right? Michael Crichton is always, you know, he's, he says this stuff in the books that seem completely out there and crazy. And then eventually they come back around to bite us. And in this case, as we're talking about this movie this week or last week, we had the, uh, the announcement that NASA had figured out with the, uh, DSOC, uh, project, the Deep Space Orbital Communications, and successfully, uh, received a video of a cat using lasers to communicate between satellites. This is exactly the same stuff that Crichton was speculating about that would put this company ahead of everybody. And this is what NASA just did, right, decades later. And I think that that's what makes the book so much better. Like, there's nothing about the movie that it says to me, oh, this movie is somehow going to be prescient. Because of exactly what you're describing, right? They nobody really takes it seriously. Doctor Karen, right? She is an, a deep and motivated character in the book, right? She is motivated so much more by the loss that that we see as just a, a side mention in the movie, like. I, quite understand the relationship between all these the parent son relationship the you know former fiance relationship it's all joe don baker is it, it just sort of tosses aside so many important things with grins and rage like that's his that's his spectrum pretty much and and so all of it ignores the fact that this book the story itself was actually based on science that made that Crichton made sense Crichton was able to make it make sense and the movie sucks the sense right out of it yeah, and you know, I think some of the struggle, and I'm sure Patrick, John Patrick Shanley ran into this as well. Some of the struggle is okay. There's the science, and that's mistranslated in the adaptation, and then you have the gorillas, and I understand. I mean, there's been a lot of work with gorillas, with chimpanzees, which with learning communication and and all of this. This film. Uh, really kind of amps that up as far as what uh, the doctors are doing as far as researching with with Amy, the talking gorilla that we have here. You know, so so that's kind of an element in here that's kind of pushed to almost kind of a fantastical level where it becomes a little... It's, it, I mean, it's just so hard to not watch any of the stuff with Amy and just think that it's just goofy. It just comes across silly. And then we get to Africa and we get to the city of Zinj and suddenly we now have these these mysterious gray gorillas that are, you know, as Amy says, bad gorillas, bad gorillas. They're kind of these monstrous things that we find out that in ancient history, when early days of King Solomon, he, he and his people actually bred these gorillas and they bred the bad uh, genetic elements within the gorillas to specifically breed these to be very good guard dogs, basically, but to a point where they became so, so effective at their job that they killed everybody. And that's essentially kind of the science biting in the ass sort of story that we have here. I understand, like, from Shanley's perspective, looking at that part of the story and going, 
it's just going to be goofy no matter how you do it. I don't see any effective way of pulling that off. Even put Andy Serkis in a CG outfit. Just the conceit of that just kind of sounds so outlandish. I have a hard time buying into it. And and take the effectiveness of Crichton's science and, and where it is today. Once you kind of, you know, incorporate the gorillas into the story, I just like, I don't know. I, I, that's a hard thing to not roll my eyes at. The thing I struggle with, and this is where my memory gets shaky, Amy's relationship with the doctor gets the story going, and there is a lot about inter- the potential of interspecies communication, and like there are some, again, Crichton makes it make sense. And on the pages of the book, in my head, I, I was able to create a vision of what all of this looked like in a way that didn't make it laughable. That That's on me. I don't remember so much of Amy as a central catalyst in the in the third act of the sort of the book as as Amy is more in the movie. And so I, I feel like the that relationship gets the, the thing going in the book and then it moves deeply into this techno thriller and a lot less Amy. You know, my hunch is that they were trying to make Amy the big adorable deal in this movie that people might latch on to as the, you know, and and it just she she didn't become the hero that that they needed. At least from looking at the the synopsis of the book, it sounds like they were only using sign language to communicate between Peter and her in the in the book. That's right. Which and maybe that's part of the problem, like the the thing that they put on to to translate her sign into speech. Uh, ends up making her sound like just that that voice is just like ugh, just it became so grating after a time it sounds like in the book she finds a way to translate according to this um they find she and and um peter find a way to translate the language of the new gorillas the bad girls and they have three messages for them go away no come bad here and then they stop fighting the humans and become confused leaving the camp so it doesn't sound like these these gray gorillas are as vicious or monstrous as they are depicted in the film and then they're basically warning them because that's when the volcano erupts and basically you know buries everything under lava at the end of the book it sounds like amy is reintroduced to the wild and goes off to join the i don't know pack what is a group of gorillas <laughs> family herd uh uh sack it's a sack of gorillas what is it uh i don't know you're gonna look it up i was about i mean i there's a chance that somebody listening would have believed me that it's a sack of gorillas and we could have made that a thing but you're gonna make it real now <laughs> it's a band or troop or a whoop <laughs> okay that's the only one that's better than sack <laughs> a whoop of gorillas <laughs> a whoop of gorillas so and I, I that's a that's a great point. I mean, look at at what they ended up doing to these gray gorillas, right? Making them the the sort of big bad. The book, as with most of Crichton's books, the big bad ultimately is always humanity. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? right yeah. Making bad decisions with with our technology. We go back to the Andromeda strain. We go back to Jurassic Park. Whatever it is, like we did it to ourselves. That's the story. And that same thing is true of Congo and um and ultimately cinematically trying to to give us a a big threatening bad uh you know whoop of gorillas to to um you know to be a, a big antagonist at the end is uh, it, it cheapens the the story that we're trying to get through and 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 removes humanity as the problem and because homolka is a caricature of 
a, a real industrialist, right? Like he's he, he's made a joke. He is the brunt of so much of the the technological failing. As soon as we see him scraping diamonds off the that are gathered across the surface of the cave, right? I mean, it was just ridiculous. He was made ridiculous, and they sucked any weight that we might have. Uh, of of commentary on the general state of humanity and technology technological evolution out of the movie because it was all put in Homolka's character basket. Terrible. It's very frustrating because I found the characters like there was an interesting aspect to what they were trying to say with each of these characters. You know, you've got Ernie Hudson as kind of like the local mercenary who's helping them. Oh my God, Ernie Hudson! I know he's. Uh, He's always he's such a great guy. Tim Curry as the Romanian uh, Herkimer Homolka. Uh, you've got Dylan Walsh and Grant Heslov as the two primatologists Peter and Richard. Laura Linney as as uh, Doctor Ross, uh, the former CIA op who is now uh, working at this electronics company, and Joe Don Baker as her boss, the CEO of the company, and Charles's father. Charles, of course, played by Bruce Campbell. They're creating a, an interesting group of characters here, much like, and my comparison for this very much was Jurassic Park through, as I watched it, as I was thinking about it, just because, again, again, another Michael Crichton adaptation. It's in that same family. Spielberg and Frank Marshall have worked together a ton. So it made sense that this was something that Frank Marshall kind of pulled, uh, you know, after uh, Spielberg did that one. And uh, again, as you've kind of talked about, kind of this, you know, sci-fi adventure sort of story that we have here with an interesting spat of characters that gives us some interesting connections. Like there's interesting story threads and types of characters that we have here. But right out of the gate, I, I like, I just can't buy into any of them. It was such an interesting thing. And I don't know if it's Frank Marshall's directing of the cast. I don't know if it's the cast themselves um, uh, you know, they just didn't have chemistry. Well, Laura Linney and Dylan Walsh certainly not having chemistry. Weirdly, Ernie Hudson and Tim Curry, uh, as over the top as as they may have been, were the people I enjoyed <laughs> right. the most. They might have had the most chemistry between them. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But like, were they just struggling with the script themselves? Like, I couldn't figure out exactly where the problem was. But, you know, there was plenty of humor in Jurassic Park, and I genuinely enjoyed the humor in that film. In this film, every time there was an attempt at humor, I'm like, ooh, well, they're trying to make me laugh, but it's just making me cringe. And I don't, I couldn't figure out where the problem lie, other than, I mean, I guess, you know, according to the Golden Raspberries, it's, it's our director, Frank Marshall nominated for Worst Director. But I don't know. I mean... Is there a particular pain point for you uh, with this one? Well, it's the it's the gorilla. A Amy's the thing that makes the rest of the story ridiculous to me. Like Amy's the thing I I struggle so much with that I can't like I can't take the rest of the movie seriously. But if there is ever a movie that defines a movie that do that is less than the sum of its parts, it might very well be this one because I like so many people that are involved in this movie and they just don't come together to bring it life. It just falls apart. So, you know, starting with the Amy uh, conversation, right, is is central for me. And then taking it to the Lori, Laura Linney, uh, Joe Don Baker, like corporate intrigue that feels empty. 
and so I, I feel like the stakes of that corporate intake that, that they just weren't able to make the decision. Is this motivated by corporate greed or grief? Or are we just yelling at each other? Like we never had a solid foundation of a relationship on, on that side that, that led to the ultimately to this giant expedition. I agree. I think kicking things off with that relationship and, and, um, and trying to paint it in a way where there was this, this family angle, as you said, where I didn't even realize that Joe Don Baker was Bruce Campbell's dad till the point where she was kind of complaining. If I find out that this is for money and not because of your son or whatever, I'm like, Oh, I wish that I had known at some point that Bruce Campbell's character was Joe Don Baker's son because that was not made clear. Like there were so many pieces of that. It was just it was put together in such a, a a mess of a way where it's just like I don't understand who any of these characters are, why I should care. Nothing about this technology made me excited. It all just felt like you know white people going in and exploiting a country's resources, and like it just I I had a hard time compa- caring about any of them. You just nailed it, too. I can't believe we haven't said that. Like that is the whole story. It's white people exploiting. <laughs> In other countries' resources and made heroes as a result of, <laughs> of course, it's terrible. This movie dates itself immediately. Immediately. Yeah. yeah, we haven't really even talked about that. The fact that you know it's it's the title is Congo, named after the. I mean, it is a jungle here. This area that we have in um, in Central Africa, the Congolian rainforests is this whole midsection here and it's also very unclear like they fly into uganda go through tanzania and then cross over the border and this is the big you know issue going in the in the film where they're crossing over the border into zaire again several years after this film came out through all the political turmoil there it ended up being renamed the democratic republic of congo but that is so unclear and, and it's just like it just feels like they're exploiting African plight throughout this story just to create an interesting backdrop. Like, like all of that stuff seems so strange. Like, you know, with Ernie Hudson's character, Adewale Akinuye Agbaje, who is permanently ingrained in my brain as Mr. Echo, Joey Pants, Delroy Lindo, like all people who are kind of living in this area of the world that's going through massive civil wars at the time. But it just feels like they're turning it into a place where it's just like, oh, we're in Africa. And so there's nothing good here other than civil war and badness. Like it just doesn't feel like they're, they're painting such a typical vision of probably what Americans had at the time of, of Africa, of a place of civil war and fighting all the time. And it just, it felt like so difficult to kind of see it portrayed that way. Do you have a a theory as to why Delroy and Joe weren't credited? No. Uh, well, I, I I know Delroy Lindo, I think, came in very late into the story. Is that right? I, I think that because they ended up just shooting his part like somewhere in the L.A. area. Like he didn't even go anywhere. It was just such a last minute thing. I'm not sure. Uh, other than this is the sort of film that potentially people just want to remove their names from. That's uh, that, of course, is my, <laughs> is my theory. Uh, yeah. I, I prefer to think of it that way because I kind of feel like I want to be uncredited from watching it. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about how it was shot? Taking a bunch of cameras in the Congo, DP Alan Davio. 
Um, have we talked about much of his? He's a very prominent DP. Oh, yeah, E.T., of course. I mean, in a lot of those early uh, Spielberg days, um, that may be the only film of his that we talked about that was E.T. I generally like his work. Right before this, he did Fearless, fantastic film. I love the look of it. Uh, Astronaut's Wife, he did afterward. Uh, an interesting kind of like horror. It's not great, but it's an interesting little horror film. I don't know if there's anything here that stood out as exciting in the way that it was shot. Other than I liked the scene with the weird laser barriers that they put up, like just the lighting in that with the guns and everything. Like there was some interesting stuff there. It wasn't great. And honestly, I don't know if I should completely fault Davey and and his cinematography with it other than and maybe just kind of the production design, the special effects teams and stuff. Everything felt so stagey. Yep. Like earthquakes, the shaking ground, it all just felt like, oh, okay, this just is a set. Yep. That's that's exactly what what I felt uh, too. It just feels uh, everything felt really fake and plastic, and and you know rocks like giant pieces of columns of stone falling on characters that are obviously unweighted, right? Like it, that got left in the movie. Like those kinds of things just feel antiquated for for filmmaking. Uh, and then finally, we get to the lava flows and. I just couldn't make sense of what they wanted me to believe uh, of where the lava was coming from and going. And the, the as the the, you know, the land starts to break up, you know, the the laws of physics get tested pretty egregiously uh, at the end of this movie. It's it's not it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, right. By the time they're crossing a fallen tree over a chasm full of lava i'm just like really like it just is very very rough and again going back to the whole conceit of a story like this and a volcano like the whole area is very um uh, geologically unsound at this point because of all the the tremors and the potential for this volcano to erupt at any particular point in time. I, I can't speak for killer gray gorillas, um, but but in general, my understanding of animals is they're pretty attuned to situations like this that may be happening. And when they sense danger, they will go the other way. They'll leave. Um, the fact that the silverback gorillas, like that whole whoop, is hanging out as long as they are, uh, waiting for Amy, apparently, before they go off and escape kind of the the oncoming lava and destruction was strange. Same thing with the, the gray gorillas. And again, this speaks to the shift in the story and you know again the book it does sound like the gorillas did attack some of the other camps but still at the end here when it seems like according to the way that the book sounds like they're trying to say this is dangerous get out of here go away but yeah. then why are they all staying like are they so trained to not leave this location that they they're gonna stay here and die because that's what happens in the film and i'm just like why if you're sensing something bad is about to happen then go and and like that was such a strange part of the film because like suddenly the lava's coming out of all crevices and crannies in this in this city 
and all the gray gorillas are like trapped and they're like, screw it. I guess I'll just jump in and take a lava bath. Like it was just such a strange thing. And just like, it just didn't strike me as the way animals would even behave in a situation like this. I think that's the, that's the truth. I, I feel like the, um, you know, I think the same thing happened. I think you called it the just now that like, the same thing happens that the gorillas were so attuned to that location that they ended up dying as a result of the natural disaster that that occurs around them. And and uh, and maybe that is the the that's a point of sadness. It's al- allowed to be a point of sadness in the book that you never get in the movie. Right. I never get that in the movie. They're never made sympathetic, truly sympathetic in the movie. And and so it's that 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 all falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. Very quickly. Very quickly. Very quickly. You know, I will say Jerry Goldsmith does the score. He's one of my 10 J's. I kind of enjoy the music like it. It fits. But again, I think it's really funny because Jerry Goldsmith often seems like the John Williams standby, like, well, you couldn't get Jurassic Park, so we'll give you Congo. You know, like you kind of go through his list, and so often there's a film that just seems like a John Williams film, uh, a step down, and that's the one that Jerry Goldsmith got. It always makes me laugh when you look through a lot of the scores he did, but I do enjoy what he did, you know, for the most part here. Perhaps uh, one of my more enjoyable points of the film. So is it a thing that you put on in rotation? Is Congo on your soundtrack list? You know, I have to look and see if I have the soundtrack. Let me go check, because now I'm curious if I grabbed this one. I do have it. I do have it, yeah. Fancy that. Yeah, yeah. But but could you sing it right now? Can we level this up? Well, I know we've got the Spirit of Africa song, <laughs> and I, that's, that's about all I remember. <laughs> okay. Uh, Okay, you know, in in addition to, can we rank um, attacks through the film? Because we've got gorilla attacks. You know, they get they get attacked by white gorillas uh, or gray gorillas, whatever they are. They get attacked by hippos when they're crossing the the river. They get attacked. Uh, there's a potential snake attack. They don't quite get attacked, but it is it's coming at somebody before they chop its head off. There is um, attack by the mercenary or not the mercenaries, but the, the, the people on the ground who are, are fighting, who start blasting at the airplane. Am I missing any of the attacks? There's, there's a, oh my goodness. I don't think there are any other strange which one, animal attacks. Which one of the attacks had the head roll out from the doorway? That was the first one, right? Yes. The, the eyeball, the eyeball when it landed in, in Bruce Campbell's lap. Oh, was that the eyeball? Didn't, didn't one of them have a head get taken off and it wasn't a head it was when richard grant hesloff's character comes running back in and then he collapses and then it's it looks like his intestines or something some glob of intestinal pilage comes flying in and lands there (laughs) i I couldn't figure out how he made it so far minus that giant chunk of his body yes and and the the eyeball is is good because it's an eyeball that's that's intact how did the gorillas surgically remove an eyeball Right. To the point that it can it can be like their fingers are just big. I'm just saying I didn't believe it. <laughs> that was John Hawks who apparently lost lost his eye. John Hawks was in the film. Lost his eye. Yeah. John Hawks, yeah. Yeah. He was credited, I think. Yeah, he was credited. I you know, I just gotta say the other thing, I know we've talked about him already, but Dylan Walsh, could you find a more bland, boring protagonist for your story? I could not figure out 
what it was I was supposed to like about this guy. Like, he was just a complete snooze. It was like another Joel Kinnaman for me. (laughs) I would not do. I would not do such (laughs) such justice. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I just had to throw that in for Uh, you. Yeah. yeah, that's that's rough. I I didn't care for I didn't care for him uh, the character the performance I didn't care for any of it. it he's a total drip uh, in the movie and it it like you call him the protagonist. I actually think this movie is so convoluted that that question be, it, you know it's a joke. That question is a joke and usually it's a joke for you. But I think it's confused in this movie. I don't think the movie knows who the protagonist is. No. The movie doesn't even, it doesn't open with our protagonist. The movie opens with the technological story. The movie opens with the search for diamonds. We we care about first is Laura Linney and her relationship. And then we get to this ridiculous gorilla sign language story. And and so I I don't know that there's a, that the movie has a clear perspective on who the protagonist is that we're supposed to really care about. Ultimately, it's probably Amy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it may be, which also would be one of its faults. But um, yeah, I just I don't even know. It is a bit of a mess. You're right, because it does confuse the issue uh, between him and Dr. Ross, particularly when we get to the end and Dr. Ross is like, I told you I was going to get back yes. at you. And, and I'm like, OK, so that? that's yeah, uh, the whole thing was it was largely just a big mess and you know it's frustrating because i i could tell that the team was hoping to create another indiana jones type of adventure movie i can tell that the team said this could be the next indiana jones you know the next great adventure movie like i felt like they were going that route with it in so many ways it just sadly completely falls in on itself. You know, I think it is misguided to look at this story as an Indiana Jones story. Like, thinking about the book, there's too much story here. There's too much adaptation. I think it's possible. I I really do. I actually have faith that there's a Crichton verse out there somewhere where somebody's going to come along who's a a, a genius at seeing through the uh, abstractness of this particular property and be able to make something really unique out of it. Maybe it's a limited series, uh, you know, on one of the streamers. I don't know. But there's a story there's a story in here somewhere that can be made something that's rich that we care about that understands the purpose of the movie that understands the purpose of giving the characters depth that that casts it well. I actually believe that. I'm going to say it because I haven't been proven wrong yet. But I don't think it's possible to make this as a family adventure because the central <laughs> like animal antagonist rips eyeballs out of people's heads. There are some grotesqueries in Indiana Jones, but it is generally a simpler adventure story. And I don't I don't think Crichton is that. I don't think Crichton's source material is that. Even with the modern technologies of ape creation that we've been seeing through all of the modern retellings of the Planet of the Apes franchise. I struggle with them finding an effective way to make this work again, because I just, I, I just, I struggle with kind of the conceit of the story, particularly the genetically bred 
apes that are protecting this city. They'd have to really spin that in a way that I could buy into because I just, the conceit of it, I just struggle with right out of the gate. Like, let's breed gorillas, gorillas to protect our city. Let me, I'll, I'll just, I'll leave you with this. And I know this is a cheap shot because you've probably not seen it, but I would not have thought that they could make me interested in the human story of, of Godzilla and that the Godzilla verse, the monster verse would, would play as well as it did until I started watching Monarch on Apple TV plus. And that show for me plays, it is so much more about the human story and about the intrigue behind the corporate story than it is about the monsters and it's an adventure and they travel all over the world and they go to great places. I think that that's a story that works. This feels very much like that. The The way to make Congo work is make it less gorilla heavy, right? you know, like Crichton did. Like there is a story in there, but there's actually much more story about the technology and about the loss of family and the grief and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I, perhaps, perhaps that's doable. And I mean, yeah, Gorilla Minus One, or, or Gorilla, yeah, Godzilla I, Minus One, another perfect example <laughs> of... <laughs> that That should be what Congo is, Gorilla Minus One. It's the whole story without Amy. Totally different, totally different yeah. movie. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I haven't seen Godzilla Minus One, so that's, uh, that is, uh, we're even. Well, I, but again, it, it speaks to a strong story about the humans in that one that makes it work so well. And so I think that's, that's, I think what for sure we're missing here. Cause yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I have a hard time caring about these people. So yeah. Oh, well, that's it. Well, we shall be right back, but first our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Rhythm Scott, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds his stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? 
We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Reel community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right. Sequels and remakes, Andy. Please tell me there's more in the Congo-verse <laughs> that I can engage in. More Congo. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, there never was a sequel, either in book form or film form. Uh, you know, we've talked about potential remake ideas, but it's never been discussed. There was, however, a video game. And you may be able to find it still. Who knows? It was called Congo the Movie, The Lost City of Zinge. It was released on the Sega Saturn. Do you remember that platform? I do. Yeah, back in 96. Later, a Super Nintendo and Sega a Genesis had other versions, but perhaps when people realized the movie was terrible, they canceled the plans. There was uh, a PC version, though, of the same, uh, largely the same game, PC Mac version of the game called Congo the Movie Descent into Zinge. And, of course... As often is the case with some of these movies, there was a pinball version. Did you? Is that the one you have in your garage? <laughs> or did you? I mean, uh, sure. Is that the yes. picture that's on Wikipedia? <laughs> there is a uh, a full, as with every game ever in the history of everything, there is a full walkthrough of Congo the Sega game on YouTube, and I'm watching it right now, and it's exactly. It looks about as good as the movie. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, okay, we're here because of award season. So please tell me, did this get any more attention than the raspberries? This actually um, was received weirdly kind of well. Two wins, 11 other nominations. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film because people were crazy at the time. It lost to 12 Monkeys, thank God. Best Director, Frank Marshall was nominated but lost to Catherine Bigelow for Strange Days, thank God. And it was nominated for Best Special Effects but lost to Jumanji, thank God. At the Kids' Choice Awards, aka the Blimps, uh, Amy the Talking Gorilla was nominated for the Favorite Animal Star but lost to Kiko as Willie the Whale in Free Willie. At the BMI Film and TV Awards, Jerry Goldsmith was nominated for the Film Music Award and won. At the Sci-Fi Universe Magazine Reader's Choice Awards, Best Supporting Actor in a Genre Motion Picture, Ernie Hudson won. And last but not least, let's talk about those Golden Raspberries. It was nominated for Worst Picture but lost to Showgirls. Tim Curry was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor but lost to Dennis Hopper in Waterworld. Both of those movies we get to talk about in this series. Very much looking forward to it. Amy the Talking Gorilla was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress, but lost to Madonna in Four Rooms. Oh, poor Madonna. Uh, Paul Verhoeven beat out Frank Marshall as Worst Director. Uh, Showgirls beat out this film for Worst Screenplay. Amy the Talking Gorilla again was nominated for Worst New Star, but lost to Elizabeth Berkley in Showgirls. Last but not least, Worst Song, Feel the Spirit of Africa, was nominated, but lost to Walk into the Wind from Showgirls. Wow. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of wow. interesting things to talk about when we get to Showgirls and Waterworld. Oh, yeah. Series. Those are real winners. <laughs> yes. Across the board winners. Uh, all right. How to do at the box office? Got a lot of powerful people. Tell me it. It made some money.
It made some money. Yes, Marshall's third film had a budget of fifty million dollars. That is about a hundred four million in today's dollars. The movie opened June ninth, nineteen ninety five, opposite the indie films Smoke. Party Girl and Wigstock the movie. This movie took the number one spot from Casper, surprising the industry that it did so well opening weekend. It was estimated to gross 13 to 15 million opening weekend, but made almost 25 million opening weekend. However, the very next weekend, Batman Forever stole that number one spot. All told, though, it did well for itself, staying in the top 10 for five weeks. It went on to earn $81 million domestically and $71 million internationally for a total gross of $316 million in today's dollars. Even though it was reviewed poorly, it still went on to land with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.9 million. Maybe it was Crichton's name? I don't know. Regardless, this was a big box office success, even if it shouldn't have been. Wow. Wow. Even if it shouldn't have been. That's the final dunk. I mean, this was the Crichton era because we had Jurassic Park, Sphere, Disclosure, The Lost World, and this. Oh, Timeline wasn't until 2003. I would have pegged yeah, that. Yeah, Timeline in the was 90s a little later. Too. Yeah. 13th Warrior was 99. That was the last one of the 90s. So the first one was actually Jurassic Park. And then Rising Sun, I forgot about that one, Disclosure, Congo, The Lost World, Sphere, 13th Warrior. So that's his run through the 90s. Yeah, it was the 80s that were pretty quiet. I mean, Runaway, Looker. Yeah, and those were ones that he, like, he was also directing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Rising Sun, Disclosure. Um, I wonder how that holds up. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and of course, Twister. How was he involved in Twister? Seriously? Written by Michael Crichton and Marie Martin. Oh, I'm looking at, uh, as original writer. I have to go to writer. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Twister also. Well, there it is. There it is. Sphere is another one that I remember thinking that book was dope and the movie was less than. Ooh, that was a, that was a rough, rough one. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, this is an interesting one to kick off this series with. I watched it with my wife, and she looked at me afterward, and she's like, that was terrible. I'm like, yeah, I've got a whole series of these. I don't know if she's going to join me for any more. <laughs> yeah. Don't invite me anymore. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. You got to be careful, Andy, because you these invitations matter, and if you screw <laughs> it up... You're going to lose them for later things that are more important. To be fair, I did warn her. I did say, this is for our series. We're doing, you know, worst director. These are going to be bad movies. She's like, yeah, I'll watch it. So it's on her. So in fact, you probably shouldn't trust her taste anymore. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll be back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Rennie Harlan's Cutthroat Island. We set sail for Cutthroat Island! Put your backs into it. Why don't you row? Why don't you swim? We can't leave yet, Captain. We haven't put enough food on board. We need less mouths. I really think that from now on we should be partners. 
It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. I don't know, Andy, how letterboxed, okay? So we take stars, we put them to movies, sometimes they get a heart. That's what we do. Letterbox.com slash the next reel. Andy, what are you going to do with this movie? Like, does it... I'm deeply conflicted, and I think you might know why. Is it because of the half-star rule that you've imposed mm-hmm. by yourself? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am conflicted as well. Uh, there are elements... I mean, I kind of did enjoy, as we've already said, Ernie Hudson and Tim Curry clearly having a good time. There were some other things that, like the hippo attack, I just think it's kind of a weirdly interesting thing to watch. I don't know why I found the hippo attack enjoyable. I I feel like I'm going to say one and a half is where I'm going to sit with this <gasps> one. No hearts. Oh my goodness. I would have, I would have bet money. You would have gotten money out of me. I thought this was going to be a half star from you and that I would come in higher than you because of the half star rule. But I am a solid one star and no heart okay. on this All movie. Right. This movie is worse than the movie where the helicopters fight each other in the sky about disease. That was also a guilty pleasure. <laughs> Outbreak. Yeah. <laughs> this is worse than Outbreak. You know, I it, I mean, it is worse than out, Outbreak, for sure. But it still had... A few little things that I was able to at least pull from it. So, you know, I, I didn't I didn't hate it, but I would certainly not watch it again. One and <laughs> okay. a half. So that that yeah. averages it out to one and a quarter stars and and um we'll kind of put that at one and a half no stars or no hearts over in our letterboxd account. You can find me there at Soda Creek Film, you can find Pete at Pete Wright, and of course you can find the show at the next reel so what did you think about congo we'd love to hear your thoughts hop into the show talk channel over in our discord community where we'll be talking about the movie this week when the movie ends our conversation begins
Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I tried, I went with most activity great on letterbox reviews because i thought let's see what the people find funny and i'm i'm disheartened by the fact that all the funniest ones are three-star reviews which i think is egregiously too high <laughs> okay so where did you land i did land on men on films three star <laughs> which is is funny a gorilla has a martini a gorilla skydives and you'll totally forget about it by the end it gets so fabulously stupid say a prayer that they didn't name the gorilla Carol Ann. <laughs> I, I, we didn't mention out loud once that the gorilla has a martini. I don't mind that the gorilla skydives at all, but the gorilla, like, come on. I like that they have to drug the gorilla a lot. Like, every yeah. every time they turn around, they're, they're drugging the gorilla again because, well, now I have to skydive. Well, now we have to cross this river. Well, now we have to do this thing. And generally, Dr. Peter doesn't have much of a problem with it. He's like, yeah, okay, drug my gorilla. That's fine. Like, he was not really a great advocate. No, no, he really wasn't. They should have drugged him. They really they should have. They should have definitely yeah. drugged Dylan Walsh. Give him a banana with a chewy <laughs> in it. what you get? Well, I've got a three and a half by Matt Singer, three and a half and a heart, uh, who says... Ebert was on to something with this one. The actors are having a blast. Ernie Hudson is charming as all get out, and Tim Curry is a hoot. Like, his accent is so thick, he almost literally hoots a few times. The cast is nothing but Hall of Fame that guys. Bruce Campbell, Joe Pagliano, Adewale Akinoye Agbaje, Joe Don Baker, Grant Hesloff, John Hawk, Delroy Lindo in an uncredited role. And the plot is so pulpy, Tropicana should have bottled it and sell it as a new variety of orange juice. The character of Amy, the talking gorilla, is also very affecting. The prosthetic gorilla costume by the Stan Winston studio is so expressive with these big, sad eyes. And then she occasionally drinks a martini and burps. It's shockingly wonderful. It's so rare to find a movie that's both this deliberately silly. There's a whole sequence built around a terrifying hippo attack. And this drenched in genuine pathos. When Tim Curry looks at Zinge, I mean, come on. It's pure schlock. But it's also pure schlock. Okay. All right. Fine. I get it. And I would st I would take that review and still give it my one star. I know you would. All right. <laughs> I almost want to give it one and a half and a heart now, just after that review. <laughs> no, you don't. Please let me save you from yourself. No, you don't. <laughs> Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.